fascinating gadgets, gizmos, and gear-based technologies. Welcome to FGGGBT. This is the show that takes your favorite fictional science and technology. We make it a reality. We are the Brain Trust. I am the analytical mastermind, Daniel J. Glenn. With me, physics phenom, Dr. Michael Denon. Well, great to be here, Dan. I'm excited for today's show. We're doing two out of the three things we're doing are things I like, love and robots. I'm not so sure about death, but, you know, we'll see where it goes. Well, that's a relief, Denon. I wasn't so sure about you, but now I can finally tick Not a Psychopath off my list when it comes to Denon. But we got to do the same thing for Ben, our enigmatic engineer. Ben, do you like love, death, and robots? Absolutely. In fact, today I'm home testing out my new VacuBot. Um, it was acting a little weird, but I'm pretty sure it's working properly now. Well, I think you're going to love it. It's definitely a robot, and there's a very, very small chance there could be some death involved. But we're going to see how that goes. And, of course, the VacuBot is part of the automated customer service, and that's the first episode of this great series called Love, Death, and Robots on Netflix. I kind of stumbled across this one. This is not only right up our alley as, as a group, but it's up my alley because this is kind of like, I don't know how you guys would describe it, it feels feels very dark mirror-ish, but it's animated, and some of them are lighthearted, but are these very fun Twilight zone looks at technology. Uh, Denon, what did you think when you started watching this? Well, it's interesting, because we're going to get into this later on. You're right, most of them are what I would call standard looks at technology that are a bit um, apocalyptic, you know, the standard things we think, where things go wrong, but there are some that were hopeful. Right, some some beautiful mm-hmm. looks at technology. I felt, and that's kind of the love and robot part without the death. So that's where that's where I leaned. I was very excited to see some hopeful visions of technology, and I know we're going to get to that more. But that's what I liked about it. Um, ben, what did you kind of like about this? Dan and I love these different these compilations of all these different stories that we get in things like Love, Death, and Robots. You get to see all these different points of view, and I love the irreverent kind of funny ones, and also these kind of serious ones because they really make you think about uh, how society can change as technology improves. I mean, th- there couldn't be a better segue into the first one we're going to talk about, which is called Automated Customer Service, which is about how robots and technology change society. And very quickly, this is about a, a house-cleaning robot that kind of, for some reason, goes bananas and tries to kill the homeowner and her lovable pet. It's a pretty terrible one. Now, we're going to talk about a bunch of these episodes from both the first and second, I guess they call them volumes. Season's probably too strong of a word. Uh, but this is the only one from the second season. I really like this one because, number one, the animation is super crazy. Uh, And and I I think this is really the vision of the future. When I think of how AI and the Internet of Things are going to combine and you're going to have all of these automated systems, these robots – powering each other, communicating with each other, and running your household. This is kind of what I see when I am when I look at the future. I'm guessing, Denon, as the optimist of the group, you don't quite see it as uh, hopeless and desolate uh, and quite terrifying as I do. Probably not, Dan. I, it was interesting. This one I thought was cool because on the surface as it started, it had a weird hopefulness to it. People seemed happy. Right. They, they were. <laughs> they sure did. Right. That's true. You know, they're kind of enjoying <laughs> themselves. Um, it was kind of interesting to me that as far as I could tell, all the people are old. Um, so I thought that was an interesting um, twist on this at first. I'm, I, I was trying to guess what the twist was going to be as I was watching it. Um, mm. So there was that element. Um, you know, the robots seem very friendly. I will tell you, it got suspicious, could not figure out why the neighbor had a shotgun in such a technologically advanced world, but it came back. It was important near the end. So um, it, it raises some real questions on who designed these robots that I'm going to get into later, but that's where I was with that. I don't know, Ben, were you um, depressed, hopeful? How'd you like it? I mean, you have a vacuum bot, so you clearly enjoy this. <laughs> yeah, well, seeing it, I, I just kind of assumed this was like a retirement community. And it was just showing us how, you know, in our old age in the future, we can enjoy ourselves, uh, you know, being being uh, served by all these different robots for all these different tasks. And it doesn't really matter uh, that, 
you know, our population is dropping, you know, we'll have all these robots to pick up the slack. So in that sense, I think it's really hopeful. Really, the only person who had a problem was the, this lady and her dog. You know, everybody else was still seemed to be having a great time at the end of the episode. Yeah, it just goes to prove, Dan, do not argue over where your picture should go. That's clearly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, look, I, I think that that's right, you know, but but let's talk about a couple things there, because number one, then you mentioned the shotgun. And first of all, for those of you who love Caddyshack, I do love that small little Caddyshack homage at the beginning of the episode where he's cleaning his gun and looking at an old lady through the window. Uh, I did find that to be very funny. But also it's the analog part of that, right? Like that's the only thing that isn't digital in this episode, and it becomes the very piece that saves them in some ways, at least from from one of the robots, let's say. Um, but, you know, it's kind of scary when you give robots like that, all it takes is one to turn on you, and suddenly they've got, you know, they've got access to your locks in your ho house, the phone system, uh, they can secure the windows, they can eliminate all means of escape. And if that robot has multiple functions like this one, such as getting rid of household pests, now all of a sudden you're an enemy in your own house house. Now, this is really scary because I think this, if we're going to have killer robots, I think it's going to be an accident. I don't think it's going to be built in unless they're obviously used by the military. But one part that I loved here, and this made me think of you, Ben, is I love that they were able to thwart this killer robot at, at certain junctures by, by, appealing to its OCD nature by dumping laundry on the ground, you know, putting, you know, when the feathers get exploded out of that pillow, it's got to vacuum up the feathers. What did you think about this as a way in some ways to program a stopping point, a way to, to, to minimize the effect of these robots? What do you think about that from an engineering standpoint? Dan, I, I think that's a great observation. What's important here is that this just shows us the hierarchy of priorities that this robot has. Uh, clearly, it want it needs to eliminate the cause of problems in the home, but its first task is always make the home presentable. So when there's laundry on the floor, when there's feathers all over the ground, its first job is clean up the mess, and then it can go back to dealing with the pest, as we say, that's causing all these problems. I think that's a great point, Ben. And Dan, it really gives us a strategy of escape here. Um, that they do use in various ways. And it would be hopeful that the humans remember this for future strategy. And it does point to this issue of, you know, the way AI fundamentally does work. We often forget that in our science fiction movies, there are these hierarchies of the programming. These are these values that it has. So sometimes that is the secret sauce to beating the, the AI that goes evil on you. <laughs> well, it might be the secret sauce, but one of the fail-safes that I thought was kind of insidious and uh, very devious is that once they destroy this robot, you know, kind of Terminator style, uh, that all of the information that it's collected is then uploaded into the cloud and then disseminated uh, amongst all the other robots, which have some, all of them have some sort of killer uh, protocol in them and they chase them towards the end. Uh, uh, that's a little scary, uh, but I think that that's exactly how the future is going to be. So I, I don't know. I looked at this more of a documentary than a fiction film. Um, but let's move on because this is, you know, a very deadly look at how the, the future of robotics, the future of AI. But I think, you know, Denon, you made a great choice. The next one was your decision, uh, and that was the Zima Blue. And this is a much more artistic look at the future of robotics and AI. Uh, what drew you to, to this particular episode? Well, I think when you look at Zima Blue, you see something um, amazing because the robot and the AI does not turn out to be a killer robot and killer AI. And it really raises the question when you compare these two, um, it, I, I realized you always get to a point where AI takes control. And I always wondered, well, why? Like, how does that really happen? Like humans would have to actually give that up in ways that are never explained in the apocalyptic movies. You know, so automated customer service ends a lot like Terminator, has that whole feel of, you know, the AI that we built killing us. Whereas Zima Blue really has kind of the human building the robot out of love for the robot. And, and that element of loving the AI and the robot then ends up built into the circuitry in ways that only become apparent at the end. And so it does show, yes, as humans, we're both destructive, but we're also capable of art and love and good things. So why doesn't that end up in our AI and in the science fiction? So I just loved that hopefulness of this particular one. That was my favorite part of it. 
Well, and I should also mention just really quickly what happens in this episode is that um, there is an artist who's become world renowned, and uh, you know part of the story is that the that this that this um, well, I, I guess I'm, I'm killing the end there. It's a robot that people think it's a human who's augmenting itself, and you find out later that it's it's a robot who's creating all of this art, and it's a great it's a really great look. But in some ways, you know, I have to say this this looks like it's mocking the elitist artistic establishment, right? That that someone can fool you into believing that they are human when they are in fact robots. Uh, and I like that part of it, but there is something very poetic about what's going on here because instead of you know a human becoming the robot, which is how we kind of think of things as going, like as you mentioned, Denon, this is about a robot slowly becoming human. And in some ways, it's got a very Pinocchio-esque feel to it. Not that he believes that he is a, a real boy, but that he almost becomes a real human. Uh, what did you think about this, Ben? Is this something that you put into the robots that you create, this desire to want to be human? Well, I think it, it's a great throwback to automated customer service where this robot has a top priority, which is keep the pool clean, right? That That's the overall, its overall goal. And it has this obsession with this color of blue and that has pervaded its programming throughout. So we can see this, how this robot's uh, goal has always been get this color to be perfect. And it has created all of this art as a way to showcase this perfect color that it's programmed with. I love that, Ben. And I'm going to go with something you said, Dan, you know, the it's almost a little satirical in the art world. I do have to throw in for our audience who may not know this about me. I took contemporary art in college. So um, what? I, I did <laughs> I didn't know I, that. I didn't I, know that about you, Dan. I, I took a class and it was that moment in life where I realized, wow, a lot of this contemporary art actually is good and means something. And But now I have the words to explain the ones I don't like, at least the way the, the <laughs> critics do. But it did, uh -huh. it did point to this interesting interaction in the modern world between the artist, the art critic, and the audience, right? It's no longer just about the artist. The art critics have a lot of power. And, and there is that power dynamic going on in this between the robot and his audience, and everyone thinking he's a person. I just love, you're right, Dan, that, that, that's a not technology part, but that interaction and human dynamic in this really was well done. Yeah, and I think the important part here is that this, unlike, the, unlike automated customer service, this almost captures a robot facsimile of humanity, of emotion, of a real connection to what it is to be a human. And in some ways, you know, art is that thing that separates us from every other animal. And in a way, the robot wants to have that connection to humanity. I really like that because, as you mentioned, Ben, this robot starts out as an AI-powered placosimus. I mean, he's an algae cleaner in a pool. And through these loving um, augmentations, these additions, these upgrades, he, you know, he becomes... A, you know, a masterful art critic that's captured humanity. And I want to say, you know, we're going to kind of spoil the end here because I, the ending of this one I felt was very poignant in that the last project, the last piece of art that Zima's going to create is this, is in the gigantic pool where he was first formed. And he he dives into the pool and then slowly sheds all of these of advancements and then becomes that AI-powered algae cleaner that he was in the beginning. And this in some way really does capture that truly human element of going back to simpler times. You know, they say you can never go back home, but that's what he tries to do here. And another way, he's able to choose his death. You know, all of those augmentations, all of those upgrades required humans to put them on him and to upgrade his memory. Now he's really gone back into the womb, back into that fetal state inside, you know, even inside of water. Uh, I felt that this was a, a, just kind of a very poetic ending. Uh, and, and I loved it. I don't know if that's too advanced for you, Denon. What did you see here? Oh, I'm totally with you on that, Dan. It was just amazing that way. And to watch um, the dynamics of it, uh, you know, all the different parts come off. What, what, what amazed me was that the core was left. So I think from a technological design point of view, you know, as the person kept enhancing it, 
um, that it was just built around this core that he could still do that. Or maybe when he went in for his enhancements at some point, he prepared himself for this. It's an interesting engineering question. How do you keep that pool cleaning core at the center of something that looks very humanoid and fools everyone as a human? I don't know, Ben, did that design element um, intrigue you at all? Or was it just the, the whole thing falling apart was too distracting? I got the sense that his final augmentation was to put that robot back in. As we saw through his augmentation by humans throughout his life, it, it seems like they were not leaving that pool cleaner robot alone. They were adding the arms directly onto it and all this stuff. So I think Zima himself had to return home. And this idea of returning home is really interesting because it seems like he spent his entire art career trying to recreate his home. First, we see these giant billboards that are enormous and as big as you know big enough that for a human it would seem like the you'd be in the pool and all you could see is this blue and he's painting the asteroids and recreating this blue everywhere he's trying to recreate his home anywhere in the world that he can and it isn't until the end when he realizes he can just recreate the pool and that's what he has to do that he figures out how to get back home which is what his programming wants him to be uh, I think that's really cool, Ben. I like that. I had never thought about the scale thing. It's something we talk about a lot is scales of different things. And some of those big blue squares were probably, you know, letting humans know what his original perspective was because he probably had very small sensors and those blue tiles looked very big. Um, I hadn't even thought of that. It gives a whole new meaning to large fields of blue. <laughs> well, definitely. And scale's very interesting because, you know, we're talking about gigantic blue squares. We're talking about the size of humans. But now let's scale it down here. Let's talk about the third episode. This is one that I picked, which is when the when the yogurt took over, which is bacteria. We're going we're gonna to go even further down uh, from humans and robots to, to bacteria. And this was my choice again because I like this for a couple different reasons. It... it Oh, let me explain the episode first. I, let, let me not get ahead of myself here. This is basically where scientists take lactobacillic bacteria and they they combine it with an advanced DNA. They splice it in there and then they create a yogurt that is smarter than humanity. And throughout the course of the episode, humanity kind of collapses, and then you see the yogurt launch itself into the uh, into the into the outer space, and and that's the future. Uh, kind of the title gives it away when the yogurt took over. Um, I loved it first of all because it's narrated by, by Maurice. Lam Marsh, hope I'm saying that correctly, and he voices the brain on Pinky and the Brain. You know, we did a whole episode on Pinky and the Brain. Uh, I love that show. The Brain is one of my favorites. But also, I love the Ricky Gervais podcast, and there's a character on there named Carl Pilkington, and he talks about reading a news article about scientists creating a yogurt you can have a chat with. Everyone has a big laugh at his expense and how silly that is, but I feel like in some ways this really was taking that idea and you know to the nth degree, and I feel like it was inspired by that. Uh, Denon, what did you think of when, when you first saw this episode? Well, to be completely honest, Dan, um, you kind of alluded to something that was my first thought. I'm like, wait, is this really Pinky's plan that I mean, the brain's plan. Sorry. Is this really the brain's plan that works? Like, I recognize the voice. I'm like, this is the brain. And he actually finally took over the world through yogurt. Like, that was my thought. Um, yeah, I, I yeah, can't yeah. believe we did it. This was not planned to our audience. You should all know. Dan did not set me up with that, like, or not knowingly, at least. But that really, my genuine first thought was, wow, why didn't the brain come up with this? This is clearly the way to go. Um, <laughs> my second thought was, wow, this is a really cool takeover plan because everybody was happy. Um, you mentioned the world falling apart, but that was briefly. That was like when we didn't listen to the yogurt. Um, mm -hmm. When we did listen to the yogurt, things got really good and everyone was happy. Um, and I think the fear at the end was, well, the yogurt might leave and it might go back to being bad. Like it was the ultimate benevolent dictatorship situation. So there was a lot. Go I, I had a lot of emotions going on. The brain won. We're all happy. Wait, the yogurt's leaving. So I don't really know what to do with that episode. I don't know. Ben, where were you? Yeah, well, I, I like that this shows how these scientists who created this yogurt really didn't know what they were doing, but somehow managed to make just the perfect uh, benevolent dictator, as you called it. And it, it makes me wonder, you know, yogurt is really interesting and bacteria is really interesting in the sense that it can divide really quickly and it can uh, reprodu it reproduces very quickly. So whatever 
great DNA they put in here. It's able to make itself even better and evolve even better really fast and able to turn itself into this fascinating organism that can take over. What I really wonder about is, is it differentiating? Are there, is it becoming a multicellular organism or are all of these uh, yogurt cells the same still? Because as we know as humans, we have brain cells, we have skin cells, we have bone cells, we have all these different things, but yogurt is just yogurt. They're generally clones or slightly mutated clones of themselves. So Dan, do you think this yogurt is differentiating and creating all these different cells to create different roles for the different pieces of yogurt? Uh, well, I think that's a great question. Now, I I'm going to pause the conversation right now because I am going to shatter your expectation and everyone listening's expectation is that this episode is silly and impossible. We need to stop talking about this. But now I'm going to build you right back up, guys, because it's actually possible if we replace yogurt with one other thing a genetically engineered slime mold. I don't know if you guys know anything about slime molds, but they are wild. They're crazy. I, Denon, I, I hold on to your hat, okay? You, you holding on to it? I am. Actually, I, I hate to tell you, Dan, I'm surprised, but I actually know a lot about slime molds, so I'm ready for this. Perfect. I'm good. Right, so hold on to your hat. So I think that slime molds may be may rival the octopus as my one of my favorite organisms on the planet because... First of all, uh, a slime mold is, I don't know how, uh, apparently you know a lot about this, Dennis, so correct me if I get anything wrong here, but they are not a fungus despite the name slime mold. As a matter of fact, they, they were thought to be a fungus for a long time. They're not animals. They're actually part of the kingdom protist, and they actually eat molds and bacteria, which I thought was really interesting. They can actually move. Some are as big as a pizza, and... They don't have those different cells like you mentioned, Ben. They don't differentiate their different cells. They don't have different um, jobs for each different cell. And as a matter of fact, a gigantic slime mold the size of a pizza may actually be one individual cell, but that does not stop them from having what appears to us to be some level of intelligence. I'm going to put lots of articles about this, so don't worry. We're going to skip over some stuff, um, but they're very interesting. Then in, add augment to this, whatever you want to add to slime molds that you think are also interesting and how they could take over the world. Well, I, I'm going to blow your mind, Dan. They show up regularly in the comp physics conferences I attend because in the field of, of pattern formation, the slime mold's transformation between different states is, is heavily studied both from mathematical modeling and just the biology because it triggers itself under certain conditions to go into very interesting stock states and other things, and it's how it sends itself around the world. So it, it, is, it is a cool thing, and I was thinking about this actually in our yogurt situation because the yogurt, I, I have two fundamental questions about the yogurt. First of all, it's initial communication, right? It, we, don't, we haven't really talked much about the technology of communication, and that's what fascinated me, that the yogurt first rearranged um, circular, I don't know, what is it, granola, whatever you put in yogurt. I don't eat yogurt. It's way too healthy. I think it was alpha, alphabet cereal. I think well, it's no, initially I don't think it was <laughs> no? letters, right? Didn't it make letters out of the cereal? Oh, maybe, yeah, yeah, out of granola, out of granola. You're right, you're right, right? you're right. And, and exactly my thought, Dan, why wasn't the person using alphabet cereal? Because that would have made this easier. Uh, and eventually it makes a mouth, and the mouth reminded me of kind of the shape transformations that slime mold makes into stalks and other things. Um, the, the yogurt's a bit too liquid, though, and, and so in the end, I'm thinking, I, I want to I jump to you, Ben, as our rocket engineer. It made me realize when it finally built rockets, like, it, it was clearly using humans to get all the technology done because liquid really doesn't have hands certainly doesn't have opposable thumbs. So I'm wondering how it built the rockets and were they, did it bring humans along to keep doing repairs? This is my fundamental question. Or can you see liquid building rockets? Uh, yeah, a liquid would have trouble. <laughs> so we'd have to wonder. So I like that you brought up the slime mold because the slime mold is less liquid, more, more solid-ish. So I do wonder if there it's not just yogurt. Maybe there's also a slime mold going on here and we have a symbiotic uh, being that we don't even realize is happening where the yogurt and the slime mold are kind of encouraging each other and growing together to create this. But I think the human, you know, you may want some opposable thumbed workers as well. And maybe that's what's going on in Ohio, that the people in Ohio who were, you know, the benevolent the first benevolent kingdom of the yogurt, uh, maybe they're a lot closer and they work with the yogurt and lend their opposable thumbs 
and the from the the outsiders in the rest of the country don't realize how good the Ohioans have it. No, I think that that's right because I think you know I think the slime mold slash yogurt is the brains of the operation. Uh, and what I found fascinating about the slime molds, just to keep going with this argument, because I think you guys are going to love this as the slime mold replacement for the yogurt, is that they don't have a brain, they don't have nerve cells, but they seem to show forms of rudimentary intelligence. Parts will even, if they encounter something dangerous to the slime mold, certain parts of that slime mold will actually go in and they will die for the betterment, for the good of the entire slime mold. They practice altruism and they can also teach each other to stay away from this stuff. So I'm going to tell you guys about a couple of experiments, then I know you're going to love this one as well, because we get into dark matter. We're going to go from slime molds to dark matter. In Japan, some scientists were, were trying to figure out just how smart these slime molds were, and they created this mazes. There's four different paths to oats. Apparently, slime molds love the bacteria on the oats. They don't love the oats themselves. And what the slime molds were able to do is create the most efficient, perfect way every single time to those oats, okay? The next step, they said, okay, what if we lay out the uh, the oat clusters similarly to how Tokyo is laid out with some of the major dense metropolitan population areas? They did that. And what they found is that when the slime mold was connecting all of the pieces of oats, they overlaid the Tokyo subway system. What do you guys think happened there? Oh. Uh it sounds like what you're going to tell us, Dan, is they match, which just makes me feel really good that we're at least as intelligent as slime mold. <laughs> That's exactly right. They matched almost perfectly. I'm going to put a video up as well. You can see this. But here's the next step, okay? Well, I'm skipping a couple steps here, but they found out that, that every single time slime molds create this very efficient path to connect all these different things. So, so there's a scientist who created uh, a, a coding, a digital model for how slime molds work, um, you know, and what astrophysicists did as they said, hey, we don't really understand how dark matter connects everything in the universe. So they laid out um, a map of the galaxy and they put the slime molds to work in the hopes that slime molds would be able to connect those galaxies in the most efficient way possible, thereby laying out the plan, the map of dark matter in the universe. We don't have an answer for that, but I think we can both agree that if it was able to map out dark matter being such a, 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 a primitive, let's say, species, I think that that in some ways is almost uh, is a very profound comment on just how connected everything is. Uh, Denon, I want to get your take on that first. And then, Ben, I'm curious how you think this all ties together. Well, I, I love it, Dan. And it really goes back to our Zima Blue and Automated Customer um, episodes where really slime mode and the way it reacts to uh, sensory input is a lot like what we're trying to achieve with AI. And so really it points out, you know, sort of the computational power of biological signaling and biological systems, even if it's not neurons, whatever the sensor and detectors are, are massive parallel processing instruments, right? And they're taking in tons of thousands and thousands of bits of information or megabits or gigabits, who knows what it is. I don't do calculations. Um, <laughs> And, and and they're processing all of this in parallel and making these decisions because you know what? Evolution forces you to be optimized and slime mold has been around a long time. Mm -hmm. So I am not surprised that it is optimized for exactly this type of calculation. It's what we do when we try and train our neural nets and our AI. Um, ben, where are you on this? Yeah, absolutely. I love that you brought up this parallelism and how biological parallelism can greatly exceed uh, computer parallelism. Th this idea of connecting galaxies or connecting the world uh, or connecting, you know, the hubs of density in Tokyo, uh, you know, that's a difficult problem. It's similar to uh, a problem called the traveling salesman problem, mm -hmm. which is a problem where you're trying to figure out the most efficient route between different places if you have to go to all the places. And it's actually a, pr a problem that's basically impossible to solve from a traditional computation standpoint. But a human can look at a map and go, well, if you go here first, here first, here first, here first, that'll be the shortest path. That'll be the easiest way to do it. Um, and so, and the fact that a human can kind of figure it out intuitively and a slime mold can figure it out as a colony just goes to show you how nature's parallelism and biological computing can greatly exceed our, our primitive, our still very primitive 
uh, single thread uh, processing and single thread algorithms that we have for this kind of stuff. Yeah, I imagine you had to love this because you both love biology and calculations. And in some ways, these guys are very tiny little calculators. I think we should sick them on the old traveling salesman problem here. But I'm going to go back to something you said here, Den, and I'm going to close with something brilliant that you said in the beginning, which ties into this episode. You know, one of the really cool things about slime molds is once they've devoured everything on the tree or log or wherever they are, they change into stalks of spores and then just evaporate away. And isn't that exactly what happened at the end of this episode? You know, we see the yogurt blast off into space, but I think slime molds do this naturally and instinctively, and they would be better tuned to develop the types of craft that would get them off the earth because this is what they do normally. Uh, Ben, what do you think about that as an efficient engineering model? Yeah, I, I think this just shows how the yogurt is just like a lot of these simple uh, organisms on our planet that live as colonies where they have fruiting bodies that you know grow up and spread themselves at the end of their life cycle. The yogurt has finished its life cycle here on Earth. It's made the Earth a utopia. And now it's going to bring along some, you know, some opposable thumb lads from Ohio uh, and spread its, its colony throughout the stars because that's what it needs to do next. It needs to keep improving the whole universe and not just our own little piddly planet. And you know what? That's going to make them the friendliest invaders of any space race because that's what they do. They go out and they make utopias. Um, I may start actually eating yogurt now. It, it apparently seems to do good things. And you can eat slime molds as well, but now I'm afraid to. I mean, now, now I feel like they're so intelligent. I don't really want to eat any of this stuff anymore. Um, but, I, you know, I think ending it on slime molds, the, the, uh, the air apparent to the octopus in my mind, is a great way to end here. You know, and, and I think we've reached our errors, additions, and omissions section. Now, there's lots of stuff that we omitted from this episode. And I'd like to hear what you guys thought, what your, you know, your honorary mentions for this episode was. Denon, I'm curious what you thought. Well, one for me was, I believe it was titled Ice. It was a very beautiful one on, on this frozen planet um, where the whole kind of underlying plot was about two brothers, one who apparently had augmentations and one who did not. They really didn't go into, I think, a lot of detail of what that meant, really, but it was alluded to throughout the, the episode. But the really beautiful part were these ice whales that apparently live under very, very thick ice sheets but need to break through the ice to breathe. Um, and when they do come up, they're kind of this gorgeous phosphorescence. Um, and there was just a lot of interesting biology and beautiful stuff going on and 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 the whole element of space travel because Chloe was out on a different planet. So it, it, you know, really touched a lot of things I'm intrigued by and to not to mention was absolutely beautifully done. Yeah, we've talked a lot about art and beauty in this. I didn't expect that much from a show about technology and robots, but uh, but I think you're exactly right. Um, ben, did you go on a similar vein with the episodes that you chose? Well, the one I, I that really kind of spoke to me was Helping Hand. Uh, one, we see kind of the horrors of cost-cutting in space where, you know, one person is, you know, having to do an EVA to repair a satellite by themselves, which is just crazy, no one in the world today would think it's a good idea to leave a spaceship in a spacesuit by yourself with either no one with you out in space and even worse, no one left in the spaceship to make sure the spaceship's okay while you're outside. That's just crazy. But And then I loved the ingenuity this, uh, this repair person shows in getting back to their spaceship once things go wrong. So it just goes to show how physics work in space and it goes to show how we shouldn't cost cut so much because it, how dangerous it can be in space. But Dan, I want to hear what your honorable mention was. Well, I love that you say cost cutting and an ingenious method of getting back in the ship. Uh, I think that is a really funny way to describe severing your own hand and throwing it to get back into your ship. Uh, it's very, very political there, Ben. I'm very impressed with that. Uh, my favorite, of course, is The Witness because you got goth girls, you've got uh, underground sex parties, and you've got a wild time loop and murder and intrigue and a crazy 
Chase. This one has it all, uh, and the ending uh, um, is not like anything I've ever seen before. I wanted to see part two. Uh, I loved The Witness. That was hands down my favorite episode. And the second one after that is All Through the House with a reimagining of the Santa Claus myth. That is my, I'm going to cheat, giving you two honorary mentions here. Um, but, you know, I want to I want to finish this section up here because we had a great comment. You know, everyone can get in touch with that, us. We're going to tell you how to do that in a second. And if you get in touch with us, we may feature you on a show. And this week's feature comes from a YouTube comment by a guy named Jags2000. And he talked about our Jurassic Park episode. And I love this comment. He said, so Chaos Theory is the true star of the film. You know, I think all three of us agreed with that. He says, his dad purchased Jurassic Park on VHS and a huge dinosaur cake when he was six years old to help him get over the flu. Uh, he, then he goes on to say, FGGBT is an awesome team. It's such a creative show. And he's truly grateful for stumbling upon uh, our channel amongst the millions out there. Well, we, uh, first of all, I can't, couldn't agree more to that second part. But I love the fact that he was six years old and his dad bought him Jurassic Park and a dinosaur cake to help him get over the flu. His dad is a real MVP here. Celebrations to the dads everywhere as we record this. Very, very close to Father's Day. It may come out afterwards, but I wanted to point to that. Um, really quickly, Ben, I want to get your thoughts on this because I feel like this is something that may have happened to you as a kid getting Jurassic Park when you were sick and watching it on a VHS tape. My story is pretty similar for Jurassic Park. My parents thought it was really important that we see that movie on the big screen uh, even though I was only eight or so at the time, they took me to the theater and we saw the movie, we saw the dinosaurs, and we could really appreciate these beautiful monsters uh, as they were, as a, you know, even though I was probably a little too young to be in the theater for a movie like that. Well, you know, Ben, I, I feel like there's an implied at the end, maybe not for you, maybe as you look back, but see the dinosaurs live and big and monsters um, a bit maybe scary there. And as a dad who's occasionally taken his kids to movies way too early and had them spend the entire movie covering their eyes and screaming, I'm a little, you know, I'm very sympathetic to those parental choices. They were great movies and it was the right thing to do to bring my kid. Um, but sometimes it doesn't go the way you expect. I don't know. Where were you on that, Ben? Maybe it worked for you. I think it worked because I just loved dinosaurs so much. And it, it wasn't as scary as, say, like an Aliens movie where you think, oh, man, Aliens could be coming here any second <laughs> and do what you see in those Alien movies where, you know, you know the dinosaurs are dead. They've been dead for 65 million years. You don't have to worry about a raptor coming back, uh, you know, until a real John Hammond uh, shows up on our planet. Right, Dan? No, I think that's exactly right. And then to you, you know, I had a stepdad who let me watch scary movies probably earlier than I should. Um, you know, we did Phantasm earlier uh, at last Halloween and the scene where his fingers get cut off is still etched into my brain, my little three-year-old brain. So that was pretty terrifying. Uh, but if you want to have your show, your comments, your email featured on our show, um, please, get, we're easy to get in touch with. You know, you can find us on social media at FGGBTPod on Twitter, at FGGBT on Facebook. Facebook, and we have an email address, you know, we're questions at FGGBTPod. You can find our YouTube versions on YouTube, youtube.com backslash Daniel J. Glenn. You can comment there. We will may, we may feature you in a future episode, but of course, you can get in touch with members of the Brain Trust individually. Denon, where can people find you? Well, people can find me on Twitter or Instagram. Just flip my name and it's at Den and Michael. Now, if you're going to find me on Facebook, you have to do a little more work. You have to stick a prof in there. It's at Prof Den and Michael. And Ben, where can people find you? You can find me on all those social media networks at B Seepser. How do you spell that? B S I E P S E R. And I can be found on Twitter at Daniel J. Glenn, on Facebook at Analytical Mastermind, and on Instagram at The Daniel J. Glenn. And remember, subscribe to us from your favorite podcast platform, whatever that is, they all work. And if you're there, take a second, rate and review us. And if you're watching us on YouTube, please uh, subscribe and give us a like and leave us a comment down below so we can hear your thoughts about science and technology. And finally, this show contains powerful scientific information that could be misused by people hell-bent on world domination. So be careful with this information. Remember, you want to be a superhero and not a supervillain. So until next time, thank you for listening. Fascinating Gadgets, Gizmos, and Gear-Based Technologies is a Glencoe production and is produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The Fascinating Gadgets, Gizmos, and Gear-Based Technologies introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and Paul Springers with music and sound design written and performed by Paul Springers. Now, of course, if you're listening to this episode and you've gotten this far, you're going to want to subscribe. 
Well, how do you do that? We're on all the major podcasting platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, and Spotify. But if you're not already subscribed to those platforms, I made it easy for you. Go to our website, fgbt.com. You'll find links to those subscribe buttons and also links to our social media, both for the show and for our individual experts, the members of the Brain Trust that's all right there fgbt.com and before you leave don't forget to check out our other episodes you can find the link at the top of the page for everything we've got and you'll notice that we've got both a YouTube version and an audio only version depending on what you like we got it for you and if you do like those videos you can go ahead and subscribe to those as well we're on youtube.com backslash Daniel J. Glenn and once again if you like this show you're going to like everything that I do go to DanielJGlenn.com to find out more thank you for listening
Fascinating Gadgets, Gizmos, and Gear-Based Technologies is a Glencoe production and is produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The Fascinating Gadgets, Gizmos, and Gear-Based Technologies introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and Paul Springers with music and sound design written and performed by Paul Springers. Now, of course, if you're listening to this episode and you've gotten this far, you're going to want to subscribe. Well, how do you do that? We're on all the major podcasting platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, and Spotify. But if you're not already subscribed to those platforms, I made it easy for you. Go to our website, ftriplegbt.com. You'll find links to those subscribe buttons and also links to our social media, both for the show and for our individual experts, the members of the Brain Trust. That's all right there ftriplegbt.com. And before you leave, don't forget to check out our other episodes. You can find the link at the top of the page for everything we've got, and you'll notice that we've got both a YouTube version and an audio-only version, depending on what you like. We got it for you, and if you do like those videos, you can go ahead and subscribe to those as well. We're on youtube.com backslash Daniel J. Glenn. And once again, if you like this show, you're going to like everything that I do. Go to danieljglenn.com to find out more. Thank you for listening.